and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Amen. Thank you, fellas. Goodness. Do y'all like that song, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds? My favorite hymn is And Can It Be by Charles Wesley, but I believe that one that we just sang has risen to my second favorite. And you might have seen that it uh, is uh, by John Newton, same author of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is such a wonderful song, but have you ever noticed that the whole song, not once does it mention the name of Jesus? And of course, it's all about Jesus, so we love singing Amazing Grace, but how sweet the name of Jesus sounds can be sung to the tune of Amazing Grace. And I'll tell you, that beautiful version that you just sang has only been sung three or four times, and only here at the Tabernacle, because that particular version where you do the lyrics that were written by John Newton to the tune uh, of the Tabernacle Collective, uh, Eddie and John and the Tabernacle Collective put that together so we could breathe new life into that hymn and sing it like that and sing the chorus directly to the Jesus. Can we show our appreciation to our brothers for uh, doing that? And so thankful that they did because I believe, you know, when you hear Chris Tomlin sing Amazing Grace and add in that tagline and the chorus and things like that, I believe what Eddie and them have done there could be sung around the world, you know. And so pray for that song to jump off the screen here and just go, 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 you know, because it's so beautiful. Um, Hold up your Bible if you have them. There's nothing like bringing your copy of the Word of God into the house of the Lord to hear a message from God's man as he delivers it. Turn to Colossians. I like how Warren Wiersbe says it, when the child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God, they are transformed by the Spirit of God into the image of God for the glory of God. So turn to Colossians, and as you're turning there, there was a married couple who had tried for over seven years uh, to have a, a baby without success, and they decided to say, well, let's have the preacher come over and pray for us that we'll be able to get pregnant and have, this, have a baby. So he did. He came over and uh, he knew about James chapter 5 using the anointing oil. And so he determined to set out and go to their house and bring his anointing oil and pray over them and use the anointing oil. But uh, he got there. And sure enough, as they began the time of prayer, the lady kind of modestly pulled up her shirt a little bit so he could lay hands on her belly, you know, and pray that the Lord would uh, allow her to have a baby. And, uh, but he realized, I've left my anointing oil at home. And so he kind of sheepishly dismissed himself for a few moments. And he went around the house frantically looking for something. He found some three-in-one oil. And he said, well, this is going to have to do, and hopefully they won't notice, you know. So he went in, and he got the three-in-one oil, you know, and put it on her and prayed over her and uh, went on home and uh, thought nothing more of it. Until 10 months later, when he was invited to the couple's home to celebrate the birth of not one, not two, but three babies (laughs) to that family. And uh, he couldn't help but laughing, and the couples insisted that he tell them a story, and so he did about using the three-in-one oil the day that he prayed over her belly there. And at that, the husband turned pale. 
And the minister asked if everything was all right, and he said, I guess so. I'm just thinking about how glad I am you didn't use WD-40. <laughs> now, parents don't really want to have 40 children at a time, but there's always room for more new disciples in the body of Christ, amen? And so we try to remind ourselves every now and then that the mission of the tabernacle is to reproduce faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. That having become a satisfied disciple of Jesus and having our sins forgiven, the Holy Spirit inside of us, our reserved place in heaven, uh, we will want to see others come to know Christ also. And so he's doing a work in us, producing faithfulness and fruitfulness. And as a church body, then we see uh, our own children uh, turn to Christ and then struggle with discipleship and some come back and there's prodigals, but also people that had never been in a church at all uh, get saved and become key brothers and sisters in Christ and mothers and fathers in the faith. And so today as we start a new series through Colossians, we're going to see Paul commend the Colossian Christians for being faithful and fruitful followers of Jesus Christ. And of course, we continue to pray that will be true of each and every new generation of the Tabernacle family as well. So hopefully by now you've got to the book of Colossians, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 1. It reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Jesus reproduces. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time of praise we've had. And thank you for your grace to us this week, Lord, as we've encountered different things and tried to serve you well, God. We pray that you will uh, take the witnesses of this past week and the acts of service of this past week and add them together into what you're doing in the lives of those who did them and those who have heard us share your truth, God. We pray and thank you for the book of Colossians. We pray that as we go through this series, you'll enlighten us to the truth contained herein, Lord. And also, God, uh, the words are so relevant. All of your word is. These words in Colossians are so relative because there are so many voices saying that Jesus is not enough, that we need Jesus plus something. And then even within solid Christians, sometimes you're not denied, but you are dethroned through lax living or through legalistic living, God. We pray that we'll be the kind of people, as individuals and as a church, that shine the light on Jesus and that believe and sing how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. We thank you that you're our prophet, you're our priest, you're our king. Lord, we believe that when we see you as you are, we'll praise you as we ought. What a beautiful line written from Brother John Newton those years ago. Lord God, we pray that uh, you'll be with us as we see that you reproduce and it will be part of what you're doing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 
All right. Well, in the first couple verses, he talks about them as a church family and the what we're starting out with is the idea that Jesus reproduces new church families. Uh, just as in 1931, he reproduced a new church here at the Tabernacle. There was a time when the Colossians church was not, and then it was, and they had had a start in the gospel. Now, it looks like Paul wrote four letters while he was in prison from A.D. 60 to 62. So that's about 30 years after the time of Christ, when Christ rose back up and went to heaven. Uh, about 30 years later, uh, Paul was in prison in uh, Rome. It's described in the book of Acts at the very end there. That's probably the house imprisonment that Paul was in. And it looks like during that time he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon. And together they make up what we call Paul's prison epistles because he wrote them from prison, right? When he wrote to Colossians, the church in the city of Colossae was probably only about five years old. So this is a baby church. It's a new church, a fairly young congregation. And we wonder how in the world did the church in Colossae get started? And we're not 100% sure, but there's lots of good data in the book of Acts and in the letters that help us have some reasonably good guesses. In Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, we're told that Paul spent two years in the great city of Ephesus speaking in a rented hall, the Hall of Tyrannus, just a, a building in the town. He rented it uh, like our founder preached in the Piedmont warehouse and they got saved and were able to start a church. They'd kicked Paul out of the synagogue and there was no church. Church buildings couldn't be built yet during times of persecution. And so they rented the Hall of Tyrannus. And for two years there, every day he preached and he taught and we're told in that same passage that all the residents of Asia, we're talking about Asia Minor here, what's modern day Turkey and above it, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now look at the map on the back of your notes. On the back of your notes and on the left side of the map you see Rome there in the boot, the Italian boot. Uh, I was disappointed a few years ago being a Campbell to do one of those uh, tests and I knew I had living relatives in Italy. I wasn't sure about in Scotland. And so I did the, the 23andMe type test, you know, that you do and that sort of thing. And it showed that I had little uh, conglomerations from all over Europe. Uh, and Italy was as much as Scotland. So what an identity crisis it led to for me, you know. But so I've learned to embrace the boot now because uh, up in the northern part of Italy, I know I've got living relatives. So there it is in Rome. And you see the red uh, dot going all the way around to Ephesus. And you see Colossae there, and then you go to the top part of the page, and you see that blown up, so you can see where Ephesus is, where Colossae is, where Laodicea is, and where the Hierapolis city is. And so, God used the church in Ephesus to plant scores of churches throughout Asia Minor, including 100 miles east in the tri-city area of Colossae, Laodicea, which was 10 minutes, 10 miles from Colossae, and Hierapolis, which was 13 miles from Colossae. According to chapter 2, verse 1 of the book we're in now, Colossians, uh, Paul had never been to those cities. But he had greatly influenced the church planner Epaphras, we learned in verse 7 that he was a beloved fellow servant of Paul, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It looks like Epaphras was the church planter that had been influenced by 
Paul in Ephesus and then gone back to his home city to plant not one, not two, but three churches in those cities there. He took the gospel back like so many wonderful people do. Now, when we talk about Asia Minor and Asia, you may remember when we finished up in the book of Revelation that chapters two and three, there are seven letters to the church in Asia. And you might remember that Ephesus is one of those and Laodicea was one of those. But Colossae was not one of the ones mentioned there. So Paul's writing in the 60s, uh, John's writing in the 90s, the mid-90s. 30 years later, Colossae had continued to go down. 500 years before Christ, Colossae was hailed as the great city of Fergia within Asia. It had, as you can see here, a, a great road connecting Ephesus in the west with Tarsus in the east, and beyond that, out to India and all that could happen in Asia, kind of a Silk Road type road, a key road. It also had a key road running north and south. But then one of those major roads had been rerouted and the new road went right through Laodicea instead of Colossae. And so Colossae had declined ever since. Just like, you know, when a highway gets built and there's a filling station that had been right on the old highway and now everybody's driving around him, they get a lot less business. That was Colossae as a town. So our question is, why would Paul write a letter to a church in a smaller town in a declining area? Um, and of course, the short answer is because God cares about the small cities and declining places too. He wants them to have healthy churches as much as big cities. But there is a more thorough answer. And, and I believe it's uh, rooted in knowing uh, some of the personalities and names that are in Colossians, but also the book of Philemon. Six or seven names are mentioned in both of those books. And I believe you've heard the expression about killing two birds with one stone. Colossians and Philemon were two letters uh, sent to one place. And at one time, Paul was going to address the church's issue, but also more particularly Philemon and Onesimus's issue. So the personal letter, and we're going to look at this as we go through Colossians, was to a man named Philemon who was the slave owner of a guy named Onesimus. And Onesimus had run away and he'd made it to Rome, somehow had been put into the prison there with Paul, and Paul led him to Christ, and then they made the connection that he had run away from uh, that. And of course, there's many great things in the New Testament where Paul writes, slaves, if you can get your freedom, do it. And his writings just transformed things, and the book of Philemon winds up being a whole letter in the New Testament where Paul's advocating for the freedom of a slave. And so Onesimus was back to uh, do things the right way to stand before Philemon with a letter from Paul and the letter was going to say, hey, this guy's such a great gospel minister. You should free him. If there's a charge, charge it to me, but I'm going to free him and we're going to have him preach the gospel. It reminds me of the great Baptist pastor, Abraham Marshall, who in the 1800s ordained the first black Baptist pastor in Georgia. And uh, then he commissioned them and baptized a lot of people and they started the first black Baptist church. And uh, his friend said, why'd you do that? And he said, the thing wanted doing, so I did it. <laughs> so here's Paul doing this with the uh, and Philemon. But it appears that Paul wrote the Colossians letter and sent it at the same time as the Philemon letter. 
um, and with Onesimus and Tychicus. We're going to find that as we go along. But because of this dear brother uh, uh, Epaphras who had come and given the report about how things were going, and, uh, and he was very concerned. So Epaphras, as he had preached to the Colossians, had preached what Paul had taught him, the gospel that is timeless. Paul in another place says, listen, if I come to you and I preach different than I preached the other time I came, don't hear me anymore, right? There's a true gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, right? That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day. And when you believe in him, you have life eternal. And for 2,000 years, false teachers have come along and said, no, Christ isn't really God. Uh, that we need to understand that a different way. They've come along and said, nah, salvation's not just by grace through faith. There's got to be works, and we'll tell you what the works are. Ah, your faith's insufficient unless you do these legalistic demands that we go through. And Epaphras had come to Paul and say, Paul, I preached to him. I started the church just like you said with the gospel. But now they're hearing all these other voices. Some are more left of where they're at philosophically. Some are more right of where they're at philosophically. And they're all challenging uh, uh, the sufficiency of Christ and uh, the sufficiency of the salvation that believers receive by placing their faith and trust in him. And so as a personal friend to favor to Epaphras, it looks like Paul said, okay, I'm going to take some of the things I wrote in Ephesians, put them in this letter to the Colossians, and tailor it toward the needs you have there, and you can go back, and also I've already sent an Onesimus back here, two birds with one stone. So it appears that's kind of what went on. So as we read Colossians, we understand that the church was being distracted by false teachers. They were being distracted away from the simple gospel message that came from the apostles to them through the ministry of Erastus. Uh, you know, and, and he's, uh, he's going to uh, really hit that hard. As we go through Colossians, we're going to look at what that false teaching looked like. It was multifaceted, but we'll understand it as we go through. But as I've said, it basically taught what many people are being taught today, that Christ is not enough. Well, folks, Christ is enough. Yesterday, today, and forever. Say that with me. Christ is enough. He's enough to save. He's enough to satisfy. He's enough to grow you. He's given his word that you can plant your life in and grow up into him. And so he is enough. These false teachers taught that the Colossian church members needed to replace what the Bible taught about Jesus and salvation with what these false teachers were teaching. And the Spirit of God used Paul to demolish those arguments in the book of Colossians. We're going to see it. We're going to rejoice in it. It will give us what we need to know to answer false voices in our day as well. Some come from outside the church. Some come from the culture, from media. Others come from well-meaning but off-track people within the church who are so desperately trying to make the gospel and Jesus relevant to the age uh, that they wind up diminishing key aspects of biblical teaching. And we don't want to be among them. We don't want to be among them. Let me just say for a moment, uh, you know, some teachers sometimes talk about it, preachers talk about it being a sin to bore people as you're preaching and teaching. And, And that's a good line and thought, but I hope you hear the spirit with which I'm saying this. If you are a believing Christian who has spent time in the Word yourself, you shouldn't be hearing too many new things when a preacher preaches and a teacher teaches. You've had the game book that the game's going to be based on during the week. Now you're with the coach, 
right? You're the player coach, and you're in the huddle, and I'm going over the plays with you that we should know if we've read the playbook, and we're going to put things into practice as we minister throughout the week. I am offended when I hear about so-called prophets in the Christian church that talk about every one of their messages is the secret of this or the mystery of that. I'm going to explain to you what the church has missed for 2,000 years. No, no. That's, that's, that's bordering on getting heretical. It's bordering on false teaching. Uh, you should come, and you've read the Bible yourself, and as you are a newer Christian who's read the Bible, you should say, every time Danny speaks, the point of my message should be the point of the text. When your Sunday school teachers teach you, the point of what they're teaching is should be the point that you see when you're looking at that word in front of you. If it's not, you ought to pull me aside, pull the teacher aside, and say, listen, there was a little too much Danny Campbell in there today, and, and, and stick with the word, brother. Let me just encourage you to stick with the word. And, um, you know, I know that there are a lot of exciting church products, so to speak, out there that wow you and woo you. But folks, we've got a faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And so what you hear should be somewhat predictable if you yourself have been in the word. So as Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, he does say many of the same things as he said in the book of Ephesians. In fact, over 60% of Colossians is reflected in Ephesians. But in Ephesians, the emphasis is on the church as the body of Christ. In Colossians, the emphasis is on Christ as the head of the church. And so we're going to see some of the best things written in Scripture about Christ being fully God, about Christ being the uh, person that created everything, about Christ being uh, the head of the church. We're going to see some amazing things as we go along. And our theme for Colossians is going to be experiencing full life in Christ, who is the head of all things. He is before all things, as Colossians says, and in him, what happens? All things hold together. You know, uh, we're told in the book of Revelation, when Christ returns, his enemies will gather to try to defeat him, and he'll speak the word, and they will disintegrate right before him. They'll just be a valley of blood right before him. And you know, if Christ right now decided in this moment to stop holding all of our atoms and molecules in this universe together, it would just disintegrate. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now look again at verse 1. Paul says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, when we look at that word apostle, it can mean sent one. We can think of a missionary taking the gospel where it's not. We can think of a church planter starting a new work, an evangelist witnessing where the gospel has been under-preached. But in the stricter sense here, it only applies to those first century men that Jesus commissioned to clarify doctrine and produce the New Testament. So that's why Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Now we are all under uh, the uh, will of God that speaks of matters of obedience. So it says things like that it's God's will that uh, people, uh, you know, He wants, He wills, He wants everyone to be saved. And so we've all uh, that are on earth have this drawing, the Holy Spirit drawing unto the gospel message. Uh, He says it's God's will that believers abstain from sexual morality. He wants all believers to get all the sexual satisfaction they have from their spouse only and no place else. And he says several things like that. It's God's will uh, that we be thankful. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says that. But there's also God's will of calling where he has a place for each of us to fit. And Paul's calling was to be an apostle along with Peter and along with John. One of those first century men, and only those first century men, 
who would clarify every doctrine in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven, and then would lay down for us the commands for the early church. And so when the brother had problems with his congregation, he went back looking for that authority uh, that Paul could give and everybody would have to respect it. Well, that's good news for us because those apostles went on to be used of God the Holy Spirit to write letters and they became the New Testament, the Gospels and Letters. We have had the complete Bible since the end of the first century. It's our authority for teaching and clarifying correct doctrine and refuting the false teachers in our day when they say wrong things about Jesus and salvation. So when a Jehovah's Witness comes to you and says, no, no, Jesus is just a God, you're like, oh no, oh no, he's not a God, he is God the Son. Uh, He's part of the triune God. Now, they had somebody uh, go back and take the New Testament and the whole Bible and supposedly translate it in the New World Translation. But nobody in there knew anything about Hebrew Old Testament, knew nothing about Greek New Testament. They just changed a few words along the way they didn't like. So John 1, 1 in the Greek reads, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And it makes it clear it's talking about Jesus. Verse 3 says, everything that's ever been uh, created was created through Him. Well, you don't get bigger God than Creator God. Jesus is Creator God. But they didn't like that, that He is God, so they changed it to a God and then make Him less than the Father. That's the mark of a cult. Uh, Mormons use a lot of the same words as Christians, but they've changed the meaning. And by the end of the day, they have a workspace salvation. They don't believe Jesus is Creator God. They believe He's one of an emanation of creations, just like a lot of people were teaching back in the time of Colossae. Uh, Hindus, uh, you know, uh, after Jesus came and so many people were turning to Christ, they said, man, that's a better story than we got. Let's include the Jesus story and resurrection stuff into our stories of Krishna and different things like that. So we can answer so many of the things, the charges that are made by knowing the word and proclaiming it. So God uses the preaching of his word to produce and reproduce church families like he did there in Colossae. One new brother, one new sister at a time, and that's what happened in Colossae. And by God's grace has been happening here since 1931. Now look at verse 2. So Paul, and he's got his junior writer Timothy with him. They're doing ministry together. Paul was a team ministry kind of guy, so it's Paul and Timothy. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Boy, there's so many wonderful things in that statement. The word saints comes from the word we get holy from. It means to be set apart. Do you know what the word church comes from? It comes from the word ecclesia. Ekkaleo are the two words there. It means out of called. Church members are the called out ones. So if you're a born again believer here, when, you're a, when a sinner hears about Jesus and turns to him for salvation and repentance and belief, they become a Christian. They are called out of the world into this new church, this family that they are part of now with other believers, and they're set apart for God's purposes now. They are his saints. And so, uh, you know, a saint is created by the blood of Jesus, period right? Because this is a positional sainthood. Now, many of the New Testament authors do talk about a Christian's desire will be to be holy. And I know that word just scares the dickens out of so many people, you know, when they think about, oh, I'm not holy. I'm not holy. I'm not holy. Well, I love reading places like first Peter because he really breaks it down. And, um, 
Basically, let me ask you this question. If you're a believer, let me ask you this question. Do you want to be like Jesus? Is it your heart's desire inside to be like Jesus rather than the old you? As decisions have to happen, as focus needs to happen during a day. I can tell you what, if your desire is to be like Jesus, then you do understand the word holy. You do understand that you want your practice to match up to your position, even though we're imperfect followers of Christ. But you've been called out and called to and called into a new family. Uh, I, I can't help but point out here, the Roman Catholic Church gets this wrong. You're familiar with this practice of them taking a saint from years gone by that has died and they uh, go through, whether it was a priest or whoever, they go through this process of evaluating their life, looking for good works. Uh, I think this, the sainthood process has to involve either that they themselves did a miracle or that somebody did a miracle by citing their name in ministry and prayer and things like that. So they say, you become a saint by the decree of people in Rome. Paul wrote from Rome 2,000 years ago now to say, no, what makes a saint is the transformative new birth that happens when a sinner turns to God and is forgiven of their sin and born again. So we don't become saints by our work for Christ. We are declared saints by believing in Christ's work for us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now when that happens, when a sinner goes from being out of Christ to being a saint in Christ then the Bible describes that what's happened to them is now they are in Christ. They are in Christ. And that's a phrase that occurs about 160 times all over the pages of the letters of the gospel. Sometimes it's in Christ, it's in Jesus, it's in Him, it's in uh, the Lord, it's in whom. And I, I believe one of the things that they have in mind when they do that, uh, and this again comes from the writings of Peter, but uh, part of it was, you know, you're aware of different symbols the early church had for Christ. One of them was the Jesus fish that we still use today. But one of the things the, they often wrote in their art in the early church was Noah's Ark. And what they were saying was that that was their shorthand symbol to talk about being in Christ. Because when Noah and his family went in the ark and were shut in, the judgment came. And they survived the judgment because they were in the ark, right? So the early Christians said, that's what it means when you're in Christ. You are in him and he's in you. That's the hope of glory, Colossians is going to tell us. And because you're in him and he's in you, then it's the same as when Noah and his family were in the ark. When judgment came, they were safe. The water just rose them up, gave them a, a sea cruise for a year. When you're in Christ... That's what will happen for you on judgment. You're in Christ. The judgment won't affect you because you're in him. You're protected by what's to come. So Paul writes, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And so these, meta, these, these images of being a saint, being a, a family member, are all over uh, the uh, New Testament. Your saints and your brothers and sisters in Christ, part of this new family that Jesus keeps reproducing. I'm going to smile inside when, more when you call me Brother Danny than when you call me Dr. Danny, you know, because we're brothers in Christ, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul writes to these fellow saints and brothers, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he uses that greeting in all 13 of his letters. So Paul is very consistent in that. So when we receive God's grace, I love that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. When we receive God's grace, uh, 
It produces God's peace in our life. And so we love to say Ephesians 2 that says, see if you can quote this with me, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you are saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Uh, Romans 5.1 says, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul's readers that were from a Jewish background, and some of those in Colossae were, although it was a very heavily Gentile city and presumably the early church was as well. Uh, some of them would have thought back to the great Hebrew blessing when God would pronounce his shalom on people, his shalom. It means peace, but it was more than that. It was uh, just uh, all the full blessing of God imparted to those who are his. And so Paul says, you're in Christ. You've received God's grace. And I want to remind you, grace to you. May you live in that grace. May you live under God's blessing, under his shalom. Grace to you and peace. And those are pretty good things to say to each other. So Jesus had reproduced another church there in Colossae through his people. But next we see Jesus reproduces faithful followers. And there we come to verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 really challenges our prayer lives. Paul says, we always thank God. Do you always thank God? Are you always in a spirit of thankfulness? Uh, I've been many times convicted by Elizabeth's practice. Every year she writes a thousand things that she's thankful for. Um, sometimes she crosses me out for a while and then puts me back in, you know. <laughs> but uh, we always thank God for you, brothers, and pray for you and you, brothers and sisters, in Christ. And so we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard. So uh, hopefully as you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ here and at other churches, you thank God for them and then you pray for them. Now we're going to get a lot to pray for them in the second message in the series next week. But here Paul mentions three specific things that Epaphras had told them about, had told him about how they were doing. And so look what it says here. Three specific things that were true of them, we hope are true for the people in this room as well. He says, I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You might want to underline or circle faith. I have heard of your lo the love, circle or underline love, that you have for all the saints because of the hope, circle or underline hope, laid up for you in heaven. So he mentions Man, I'm so thankful for you. I prayed because I've heard that your faith is in Jesus. That tells me you know the Lord. Uh, that, that gives me assurance that, you're, that you've turned to the Lord, just like we learned from 1 John 3 uh, a couple weeks ago. But, but I've also heard of your love for the saints. That reassures me because faith received is love in practice. Faith in God, love for Him, is seen in love for others that you can see, starting with your brothers and sisters in Christ and working out from there. And it's all based on the hope laid up for you in heaven, the certainty you have of things to come. So the Colossian Christians were characterized by faith, hope, and love. Now, let me tell you as one who, I, I, I challenged you to read the whole uh, four, four uh, chapter letter um, in the last month I've challenged you, and hopefully many of you have. But this is brilliant beginning for Paul to these people because they've got voices telling them Christ is not enough, their salvation is insufficient. And Paul from Rome says, from what I've heard from your preacher, 
you got what you're supposed to have. You've got the faith that Christians have. Your faith is in you believe in Jesus Christ. You're building your life around belief in Christ. I've heard from him the tangible expressions of your love for Christ, your love for the saints. That reassures me that you got it. And of course, it's all based on the good things I taught Epaphras and he taught you. It's based on those things. So folks, throughout the apostles' writings, they speak of how faith, hope, and love are the trademark characteristics of believers. You know about 1 Corinthians 13, 13, right? After extolling love, love is patient, love is kind. He says, now abide three things. What are they? Faith, hope, and love. What's the greatest of them? Love. One day our faith will be sight. But our love for Jesus and love for others in the body of Christ will go on forever and ever and ever, as Billy Graham would say. We saw that in 1 John 3.23. Remember 1 John 3.23? Let's put it up here. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. So how did Paul know that the Colossians were faithful followers of Jesus Christ? (laughs) The same way I can tell If you are a faithful and fruitful follower of Jesus Christ, the same way you can tell whether I am, you're looking for strong belief, and even weak belief, if it's in the right object, will get you there, right? (laughs) I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So you know that I'm in, and I know that you're in, in this thing called the body of Christ and with the reserved place in heaven, because we believe in Christ, and because we love each other in His name. We have those tangible expressions. Of course, it's imperfect. We have to keep on getting back on track and do it right. But all that's based on the certain hope laid up for us in heaven. Uh, It produces that faith and love. I I, I said it a couple weeks ago, and maybe some of you are still thinking about it. I do believe that all that God commands us to do can be traced back to the words belief and the word love. Uh, why do you not steal from somebody? Because that's not loving. You know, you're, you're, you're showing, first of all, a lack of belief. You're showing you don't trust God to meet your needs. But it's also a lack of love for the person you're stealing from. It's a, inherent in it is selfishness, and selfishness doesn't go with love, right? Um, so check that out sometime and talk about that. So don't let false teachers sidetrack you by refocusing on their commands instead of the greatness of Jesus and loving others in his name. So he reproduced a new church. He reproduced faithful followers, but also the last verses there, he reproduces fruitful followers. After reminding them of how God's grace had produced the faith and love they had, Paul reminds them that this is what they had heard from when they heard, before when they heard the word of truth, the gospel. Look at it there in the second part of verse 5. The hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of tr- the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What rich phrases there. The word of truth, the truth, the gospel, the grace of God in truth. In verse 6 he reminds them that the gospel, what the gospel had done for them. They'd been born again. They had received God's grace. There was faith. There was hope. There was love. And what the gospel had did for them, he reminds them, it's the same every place it goes. So listen, when you are with believers in another part of the world, how do you know whether they too have received the gospel? 
You know it because of their strong belief in Jesus. They're building their lives around his word and because of the love they show for you and other believers in their midst. Paul said, it's happened with you and it's happened in Jerusalem. It's happened everywhere. It's here in Rome too. Even while we're in prison, we're seeing those of us who have received God's grace, whether we were slave or free before we got in here, whether we're rich or poor, then what we're seeing is this production, that this reproduction that happens of the traits of faith, hope, and love. And he said, that's what you look for. And again, Paul's being brilliant here because they were looking for everything else, signs of outward success like this world likes to see, outward signs of success. They were saying, hey, if you're really down with the program, then everybody will parent the way our legalistic parenting document says to parent. You know, it'll all look like this. It'll be cookie cutter here. Over in this area, it'll be cookie cutter about how to do leadership. Over here, cookie cutter. And, and, and uh, Paul said, no, no. Uh, it is not what those false teachers say. They want to happen in Colossae there, so other cities will do the same thing after that. The universal trademarks of this are put there by the Holy Spirit, and that's responding to God's grace, faith, hope, and love. It'll, the, the, all the intangibles, those other things will look different for different people, but these things will be there in those who will believe. So what's the bottom line? The Colossians didn't need to learn more secret knowledge like the false teachers had told them. They needed to focus their lives around the biblical knowledge they already had. That's what would make them faithful and fruitful. And the good news is, 2,000 years later, it's the same for us here. It's the same for the Christians we're going to see in Kenya in November. It's the same for uh, whatever part of town you live in, whatever part of the country you live in, whatever part of the world you live in. Those who have known God's grace are seen through the exhibition of faith, hope, and love. Folks, I'm concerned about the many false ideas bombarding Christians in our day. Some of those Voices are confusing people and making them doubt the full deity of Jesus Christ. That's always been true. The church has always had to deal with those things. Some of those voices re reject salvation by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone and insist that people do some extra work to get saved or to stay saved. Some of those voices... Again, they take you through a legalistic man-made checklist rather than what the scripture calls for. And such teaching, again, it doesn't always deny Jesus, but it usually dethrones him. And so what happens is instead of being around other believers and talking about Jesus, and they're talking about what he's doing in our lives, and he's talking about ways we can be involved in expressing his love to others, we put it on all kinds of other stuff and then judge those who don't do those things. Epaphras knew his people needed to hear the original and only truth again from Paul, and so do we. Let me just pause for one second here to say how much I appreciate the great preachers of old, and many of them are still in our country. I appreciate the Charles Stanleys that are still living. I appreciate the David Jeremiahs. I appreciate the Chuck Swindolls and the Tony Evans. They never do anything that makes my job harder as a local church pastor. They're saying the same things on a bigger stage that I'm saying on a smaller platform. And I appreciate that about them. Throughout church history, there's been faithful brothers that preached apostolic doctrine from the New Testament and the whole Bible. And there have been others that say, oh, Paul didn't give you enough. Got to give you this extra stuff. Got to tell you about the secret or the mystery. Got to jazz this stuff up so it's appealing to the young people. Got to do this. Got to do that. And many of those folks, the, the, the guys I just mentioned, they have been, and, and you know, we can all fall. Uh, 
Billy Graham was so faithful. The guys I've mentioned are more like North Stars, that because their faith is in Christ and they teach the word, it's like North Stars that you can sail your ship by. A lot of these other guys are like shooting stars, and you can predict since their emphasis is so much on emotion, so much on show, so much on celebrity status, you can almost see the stars start to fall from the sky and it will crash. Let's stick with Jesus at the tabernacle. Let's stick with God's word at the tabernacle. From the pulpit in the classrooms. And here's why. Here's why. Because wrong ideas in the head always lead to wrong actions in life. They always do. But biblical ideas in our heads can lead us to experiencing full life in Christ, the head of all things. It's a good time in the year 2022 to get into the book of Colossians and see Paul answer some of the same false teaching that's true in our day. But he just doesn't do it in the negative, pointing out what they're saying wrong. He takes us back to what it's always supposed to be about anyway, how good and glorious Jesus Christ is. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He can save your soul. He can turn sinners into saints. And He's been doing it for 2,000 years, and He's going to continue doing it into the future. Until He returns, we've got that hope, and that hope produces faith in Him and love for one another. Won't you bow your heads? Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.